0: trying to like mimic this eternal or infinite beauty I like, see in the starry sky at night. And you're always fumbling after it. Your words are always going to be inexact and, and only partially precise.
1: Welcome to the Converge Lecture Series podcast, a co-production of 91.5 KRCC and Converge Lecture Series. I'm Jake Brownell. Today we're joined by Anthony Doerr. A writer of short stories, memoir, and novels, Doerr is perhaps best known for the book All the Light We Cannot See. Released in 2014, that book earned Doerr a Pulitzer Prize for fiction and was a huge commercial success living on the New York Times bestseller list for 130 consecutive weeks. Set in Europe, amid the chaos of the Second World War, all the light we cannot see follows two children, Marie-Laure, a blind French girl who helps her great-uncle broadcast radio messages for the French Resistance in the Nazi-occupied town of saint malo and Werner, a German orphan whose fascination with radios and natural skill as an engineer leads him to a Hitler Youth boarding school and eventually into the Nazi army, where he tracks down French resistance broadcasters like Marie Lohr and her great uncle. In a vividly rendered story that spans many years, the book explores the small and large ways that ordinary people struggle against or succumb to the forces of history and the pressures of their time. Dor lives in Idaho, where he's currently working on his next novel, He was invited to speak in Colorado Springs as part of Converge Lecture Series, which brings writers and poets to the city to share their reflections on art, life, and the topic of moral beauty. I spoke with him in advance of that talk. Anthony Doerr, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today. Oh, it's a pleasure, Jake. Thanks for having me. So I want to just jump in. You know, folks will of course, be familiar with your book, All the Light We Cannot See, which came out in 2014. I heard an interesting story about how that book got started. And I'd, I'd love it if you could just talk a little bit about the genesis of that that story. Sure. This was 10
0: years before that, 2004, I think. Uh, I had finished a my second book, a novel called About Grace. I always go somewhere with a little notebook in my pocket because my memory is less than reliable and uh, i sometimes jot down ideas i was i was at princeton for one year my wife was extremely pregnant with twin boys and uh they had put together the cover the jacket design for about grace and those were the days when they would either like fax you it or they were like (laughs) why don't you just come up so i took the train up into the city up into penn station and as the train starts getting into the city it starts slipping underground There's a guy in the seat in front of me, and he's talking on his cell phone. If you can picture a 2004-style cell phone. (laughs) Maybe a flip phone. Yeah, yeah. It was like pre-Razor and all that stuff. Uh, He's talking about the sequel to The Matrix. I remember that. It was like The Matrix 2 or something. (laughs) So we're underground, probably 50 feet underground. We're going 50 miles an hour, and his call drops. And he got angry. He got kind of, in my opinion, unreasonably angry. And, uh, you know, after I kind of chuckled to myself, I just started thinking, you know, what he's doing, what he's expecting this little device in his hand to do is a total miracle. You know, it's no bigger than a couple of packs of playing cards, and he's using invisible light to send light waves between radio towers at the speed of light. Each of these towers is miles and miles apart. Who knows if the person he's talking to is in Colorado or in Madagascar, and he's expecting that to happen instantaneously while he's on a train underground. And I think we're all kind of doing that all the time. You know, we're taking these incredible technological marvels for granted. So that, that night I kind of started a story. I didn't know if it would be a novel, what it would be. I just started a story in which somebody's – using those invisible ways, that light we cannot see, to tell a story to somebody else. I had imagined the storyteller as blind, kind of trapped in darkness, and I imagined the listener also trapped in a kind of darkness. And somehow he or she needed that story as a kind of salvation. Uh, And it just led me into this wormhole of researching radio, the beginnings of radio. For our whole history as human beings, we you know, had to see the people in front of us to communicate. Uh, there were, there are some really cool examples of long-range communication. You know, the Greeks would light big pyres on top of hilltops miles apart to send a very, you know, simple message. And Nigerians would use drumming to kind of send even more complicated messages. Maybe, you know, somebody's like, a baby is born, that kind of level of complication. But for the most part, you had to see the people... That you were communicating with, and to have that blown open in the past three or four generations of human beings, where you know presidents and emperors can speak to their subjects, uh, you know to hear the voice of a stranger from hundreds of miles away in real time, and have that move you is an incredibly powerful tool. And as soon as I started reading about the Second World War and the way. Nazis had harnessed very, very early Goebbels, maybe the second worst human in, in history, recognized the power of this new technology, made very, very affordable radios for citizens, made them cool-looking so that young people wanted them, and then soon made it mandatory to listen to national broadcasts, made it illegal to listen to foreign broadcasts. And by the end of the war, the Gestapo was hunting down and eliminating and executing people who were listening to foreign broadcasts.
1: It's such an interesting story to me because, you know, as a reader, that book is about so many things and kind of just has the texture of life itself in some ways. But to think that for you as the writer, it began first and foremost as a story about radio and about this kind of invisible communication. After you finished writing the book, did it still feel like that kind of core idea uh, that it began with was at the heart of the story? Yeah, that's a great question. You
0: know, when you're a novelist writing over a long period of time, you're a different person from day to day. I mean, we're all different people from hour to hour. And uh, ultimately, when something takes you this many years, it took me a decade. Uh, you know, you, you're you growing. I became a parent. I became a parent of two-year-olds, five-year-olds, you know, 10-year-olds by the time I'm finishing it. And so you're trying to build something and compress it into a space that a reader can experience in the matter, in the short story, in a matter of an hour, in a novel, in the matter of... Maybe three or four nights, and yet, you know, you're a different person as you make it. So, of course, my interests are always, you know, ranging out like some fractal into all kinds of other subjects. But that was the core. Every time I'd get bogged down or get, uh, you know, really discouraged with my progress on the book, I try to remember, you know, the magic of somebody huddled in a room listening to a story being told that's coming through the walls with invisible light carried by invisible light that was the one thing that I kind of keep kept in my mind usually titles come very late to me and that title came super early all the light we cannot see so I wanted to play with all those different metaphors you know uh, apparently you know, the light we can see, visible light, is just one ten trillionth of the electromagnetic spectrum of all the light that's bouncing off my bald head right now. (laughs) And, uh, you know, that that just shows like how limited we are. You know, I think bumblebees can see patterns and ultraviolet light on flowers that we cannot, or supposedly certain shrimp on coral reefs have a much wider chromatic scale than we do. And, you know, here I am, taught 35 years ago in high school that humans are at the top of the animal kingdom. And here are all these other species that experience the world in ways that we cannot. So you start wondering, both literally and metaphorically, you know, in what ways are we limited? What kind of light are we not seeing? Whether it's, you know, the people around us suffering in our communities, suffering in Syria, suffering in... You know, droughts across the world right now. What kinds of stories do we not see? What kind of light are we not seeing?
1: So, for folks who haven't read this story, it, it it's set during World War II in Europe. Follows a a girl in France, occupied France, and and a young boy in Germany who's sort of part of a Hitler Youth school and then and then later part of the army. Once it became clear to you that this book was going to be about. World War II on some level and about the Nazis and a character who is a Nazi, it seems like inevitably that would start to raise the specter of morality and of sort of these big, big questions of of good and evil that um, are so closely tied to, to that period in history. How did that sort of emerge for you? Was that something that you started to think about as you were realizing that that was the world that this book was going to be set in?
0: Oh, absolutely. Um from the beginning you start thinking through that. You know, remember while I'm working on this book, the internet is exploding and we're surrounded by a new technology, the mobile internet, internet commerce, all these different new tools that are available to our species and you start asking yourself like how are we using these? The technology itself might be neutral or so engineers want to believe, but, um, you know, right now, I mean, five years after this book is done, I'm still thinking through, I think we're all thinking through these questions all the time, like, you know, Twitter or YouTube can be incredible tools of education, of liberation. You can be in Mongolia and learn how to repair your tractor. You can learn French with YouTube. The Arab Spring probably doesn't exist without Twitter. Uh, but at the same time, uh, misinformation is being spread. Maybe our 2016 election, almost for certain, our 2016 election goes a different way uh, without these tools. How are we using these technologies? You know, And, of course, the, the rise of the Nazi Party in the 30s in Germany is a, is a different instance. But in a lot of ways, this questioning of information... How information is controlled, how it's delivered to a populace, how you can try to deprive a populace of its ability to think critically or independently,
1: those things are still very relevant questions. So, One thing that occurred to me when reading the book is how, you know, there's this phrase, the banality of evil, that's familiar from Hannah Arendt and the Eichmann trial. And, you know, the idea that, that the Nazi regime, so much of it was just kind of the day-to-day unquestioning, ways in which people participated in in an ultimately evil endeavor. And you see that in, in the character of Werner and his sort of... It's almost more like a joy of evil on some level where he discovers this thing that he loves, radio, and he has the opportunity to learn about it and to become invested in it and do all of those things. And it just so happens to be in service of this horrific regime. Was that a theme that you were interested in?
0: Of course. Of course. Yeah. I mean, just asking those questions and trying not to judge. Just say, you know, as as a boy... Uh, I grew up in the east side of Cleveland. And I loved the Cleveland Indians. I loved listening to those games on the radio. And often they would end after my bedtime and I would sneak upstairs and I had this little hand-built crystal radio and I would be under my covers. I'm sure my parents probably knew I was doing it, but I didn't think they did. And I would listen to the ends of these games. You know, they would be in... Kansas City and it was a story. I knew the players and I knew you know, kind of the the nine-act structure of a baseball game and was quite engaged in this magic kind of being pumped into my ears. And so I was very in love with the idea of radio. And I wonder you know, how many engineers are out there are just trying to execute extremely complicated problems. Now, the, the people who are building iPhones right now trying to shrink the radio, trying to shrink the battery and make the camera even more astounding. And there's not a lot of time in your day to think, what is this doing to young people? What is, you know, the engineers at Snapchat are just trying to capture a kid's attention and help them communicate with each other. But maybe Snapchat's also fraying young people's ability to read a book or to concentrate and Um, So, you know, those are much smaller moral questions than Werner has to grapple with. Um, But I can certainly relate to them. I never once got to read any of these memoirs, diaries, you know, interviews with survivors and thought, you know, I would have been a hero. I would have totally, you know, herded a bunch of Jewish neighbors into my basement. I I think I would have been much like Werner, who in many ways is the blind character in the novel, who is just focus on this one problem ahead in front of him. You know, how do I find the location of radio broadcast? And it's only quite late in the war that he has to start to face the moral consequences of what he's actually doing, what he's executing.
1: And speaking of blindness, obviously one of the main characters in the book is is a blind character. And I was interested in knowing more about how you approached um, writing from her perspective, from Mari Lohr's perspective, because it, it's clear that the writing is very you're emphasizing the senses besides sight and it's very evocative in that in that way and i was just curious to know how you went about trying to write that way and trying to inhabit that perspective
0: uh yeah quite honestly with a lot of fear i still worry that i didn't do it well enough um you know i read as many memoirs as i could by visually impaired people i um my office is quite close to the idaho center for the blind you just start you know, even reading about the cost of Braille books in the '30s and how few parents could afford a book like that, and like maybe she would get one book a year that she'd be able to read. You know, so research is one way, and imagination is another, uh, and then yeah, challenging yourself to try to limit visual description. You know, that's one of the great gifts we have as novelists that, or as poets or short story writers that that filmmakers do not have, is that we get to you know, help a reader smell. We get to mimic the pattern of thought. We get to use sound in ways that maybe filmmakers get to play with sound in really interesting ways, but we get to have uh, the entire range of sound without having to spend any money. (laughs) So I think, you know, I tried to take advantage of some of those tools that we have as writers, and, and I hope I did so carefully enough. You know, I've had people who are blind come to me after events and they say I've gotten as much of it right as they thought I could. But I feel like also it's a, you know, it's a risky thing to be an able-bodied person and write from the point of view of somebody with a, with an auditory disability, of course, or any other kind of disability, a visual disability.
1: And it's something that you've done in, in the past too, right? I, I was reading The Shell Collector, which prominently features a blind character. What is it that has brought you back to characters who are experiencing that
0: yeah one of my yeah very first stories uh in my first book the shell collector uh, uh yeah he, he's a visually impaired malacologist that was just super interesting to me because i l- learned about a, a scientist who's uh still alive working in california who works with venomous snails and he's blind and uh, it's just so interesting that uh, you know he's contributed really significantly to the field, and that these are extremely dangerous. Some of these shells, these cone snails, uh, can kill you. And uh, I just love that. I think that's such a sign of human curiosity and the human ability to uh, overcome and to see. And so yeah, I play with that in that story. Sometimes you, you know you have these interests, but you try not to ask yourself why exactly, you, you know, I, I'm in love with fairy tale and fable, and there's something you can play metaphorically always with blindness and story. So uh, I'm not sure if I'm done with that or not. But uh, yeah, those two instances, I certainly played with it.
1: One thing that I've also noticed in, in a number of your stories is the role of obsession of characters who seem to have a, a kind of obsession with one thing or another in all the light we cannot see. It's, uh, you know, Werner and the radio, but also Murray lore and her shells and the father and his um, locks and the figures that he creates and the, the cityscapes that he builds. And it just made me wonder if you are someone who has... I I don't know if it's if obsession is the right word, but that ability or that that instinct to kind of get really, really drawn into to sort of particular things.
0: Yeah, that's a great question. I don't think I've ever been asked that. I think. uh I love that. Yeah, I mean, for me as a writer, I think one of the greatest gifts of being a fiction writer is you get to chase these curiosities and sprint down these wormholes and learn as much as you can about violin making or the way memories are preserved in the brain. Or, yeah, in the case of all the light, we can't see like, you know, locks and keys and how were valuable things protected at the Natural History Museum in Paris. And I love learning the specialized languages of some of these obsessions, if that's the word we want to use, you know, um, whether it's forestry and punks and spars and different names for saws or, you know, um, in the case of snails, you know, all these different, the volutes and the entrances and the spires of shells. And uh, I love being able to command that language. And then when I finish a project, I get to go dive into some other place and get to chase curiosities and be a lifelong learner and don't have to specialize in any one thing. And so I I think in some ways, yeah, I love to do that. I think it's a great way to immerse yourself in a world to surround yourself with the language of all these different obsessions that humans adopt.
1: Yeah. It seems like almost in in expanding your vocabulary in that way, it gives yourself an ability to see parts of the world that you didn't know were there, to see distinctions among things that maybe the ordinary person doesn't always pay attention to. Absolutely. I mean, you're knitting together a dream for your reader, and you don't want your reader to wake
0: up. And one of the most effective ways to to knit that dream is to use the language of expertise in all these places. And so uh, building you know, the authority, the word author is implicit in that word, often has to do with diving into some subject. Often research is a kind of procrastination for me because I find actually forming these narratives difficult. So uh, it's really fun for me to get to dive into
1: uh, you know, all the different things that I've dove into in these projects. <laughs> so I'd like to take a quick step back and just ask how you became a writer and what it was that drew you to writing in the first place.
0: Uh, yeah, it was reading, you know, I was, uh, the youngest of three boys and mom read us the Chronicles of Narnia when we were kids. And I remember that, um, somewhere in one of those books, I turned to her, I'm like, how did they do this? How do they invent these things? And she kept saying, well, it's not they, it's just one person and he's dead. And that, you know, floors you, this idea that this voice still exists. These complicated worlds inside a wardrobe still exist and can be transferred into your mind, into your imagination with these extremely inexpensive materials, these little black marks on a white page, something super magical about that. So uh, I think even at that age, maybe seven or eight, that, that I wanted to kind of chase that magic and try to imitate it. I had little Playmobil. I was lucky enough to have like a Playmobil pirate ship. It was like my big toy. And I would use my mom's, it was kind of like a mustard yellow typewriter. And she had this kind of see-through paper. And I would type little narratives, little stories about, you know, the adventures my pirates would go on. And then, you know, you have this incredible power of dialogue where you can hit a quotation mark and then your characters get to speak. And, you know, and then I would like maybe sneakily type a swear word and then cross it out or cover it with whiteout. You know, whiteout was, of course, magical too. Uh so I think you know early on I I wanted to do that I didn't have any role models or you know where I was growing up it wasn't like mom and dad had authors over to dinner or something you know mom was a science teacher and my dad ran this little printing company so I never fully believed that it was something I would be able to do it just seemed like a dream I could have but as I got older I kept writing stories kind of secretly in notebooks and then uh I started to think in my early 20s, I might always regret it if I didn't try it more seriously. And uh, that's kind of how I got started. But even still, you know, I still feel like a fraud. Often, I don't often like tell somebody on an airplane that I'm a writer. I think I'm always waiting for the day of like, well, you're not actually a writer. You just grew up in Ohio. Like you have to be born in Paris to be a writer. <laughs> but, you know, so
1: I still struggle with that sometimes, that imposter syndrome. Wow. I I mean, I think a lot of folks would be very surprised to hear that given your uh, success as a, as a writer. Is there something that you think would ever uh, enable you to to get beyond that feeling, like some achievement, something that you could accomplish as a writer where you'd say, "Okay, now <laughs> I've now I've done it."
0: No, because it's <laughs> implicit in what we're doing. It's like we're using these these fungible, man-made, agreed-upon things that are words, and we're trying. I'm I'm trying to like mimic this eternal or infinite beauty I like see in the starry sky at night. And you're always fumbling after it. Your words are always going to be inexact and, and only partially precise. And together with the reader, you work in this kind of ballet to build this imaginative thing that lives between you. And that's an incredibly beautiful and human thing, but it's never going to be as good as I is my original, unsullied, unwritten version of of a book. You know, each time you even try to make a sentence, it's always a little surprising and inaccurate and and faulty, you know. Um, so I think it's beautiful that, for example, in All the Light, we can see you know, every reader would draw, say, Uncle Etienne's house in this town called Samaloa. You know, they might draw it slightly differently. Uh, I think that's a beautiful thing, but I also— when you're trying to write it, you have your vision of it, and you're trying to get it down, and it's always somehow inexact, and uh, that makes it, you know, a lifelong art. Uh, you know, it makes it a beautiful, hopeful thing. Each time you you sit down, you're like, this time maybe I'll be a little better than last time, but uh, ultimately, no, you can never say like I wrote the thing that I saw this this the music that you know Flaubert said the. You know, we we long to make music to melt the stars, but we end up like banging on pots and pans to make the kind of music bears
1: dance to. (laughs) With All the Light We Cannot See, you you worked on that book for 10 years. And just hearing you talk about it, the level of sort of perfectionism and, and exactitude in how you approach that. I'm just curious to know how you decided it was done. Uh, that's a good question because I'm trying to finish a book now and I'm just struggling so much with that
0: exact question. Um, you know, I wrote two books as procrastination during that book. I wrote a collection of stories called Memory Wall. I wrote a memoir about a year we lived in Rome when our kids were tiny. And uh, part, part of that was, uh, yeah, perfectionism. part of that was also the psychological damage of reading about the extermination of so many human beings, millions and millions of human beings dying in that conflict, uh, I would have to take breaks just because, you know, you can only read about death for so many nights in a row before you're like, okay, I've got to work on a different project. So, yeah, I think, you know, there's the classic maxim a lot of writers have, like when you spend one day taking out the commas and you spend the next day putting the commas back in, that's probably time to share it with somebody. Another thing is, you know, my wife is so invested in this project, we're we're at this point, you know, I'm not making a lot of money from my writing and I've traveled to Europe three times to research and it's not at all clear if anybody would be interested in reading this thing I'm making. So I felt so desperate that I owed it to her to print this thing off a printer. You know, because all she knows when I go to work usually is like, yeah, I went to work. I saw nobody. You know, I ate a donut at my desk. And I was there for seven hours and then I came home. And uh, at least, you know, you get to the point where you're like the people who've helped you and believed in you, they, you owe it to them to print this thing out and make it something real share it with somebody else and see if it's working. And so I think maybe that was just the moment I'm like, okay, it's time to show it to my wife, Shauna, and see what she thinks. I don't know if it was necessarily done at that point. The version that even I sent to my publisher, I think was 165,000 words. The final version was about 120,000 words, so I cut about 45,000 words after, you know, getting the first contract for the book. And uh, just to give you a sense of that, my, I wrote a book called Four Seasons in Rome, and that book was 45,000 words. So
1: I cut a whole book out of the book in some ways. And, you know, the book was a bestseller for, I think it's like 130 weeks. That kind of commercial success, um, obviously you'd had critical acclaim and and commercial success prior to that, but that's just on such a, incredible level. How did it change your relationship to the writing process, if, if at all? Oh, it just pumped just
0: gallons of fear into it. It's just, uh, you know, you're always wondering, like, if you make something that popular, what did you do wrong? Uh, and so uh, I was... I'm still kind of absorbing that, you know. I um, you know would maybe reach fifty or sixty thousand readers in my previous books, and that was exciting. I could write back to every person that wrote to me. I was able to, you know, deal with my email. Uh, You know, uh, I could deal with my email for even just ninety minutes, say, and then go back to work. Uh, And you know, you go on a tour. Maybe you visit. You're lucky enough to visit nine or ten bookstores and. Uh, meet some cool booksellers. Maybe you've got 30 or 40 people there and you're so grateful they're all there. You're like, thank you ladies for coming out here in Tampa Bay. I love you guys. (laughs) And then, you know, at the peak of this book, I just got extremely overwhelmed. You know, there are other writers on the bestseller list who I feel like are more professional than me. They have like maybe an assistant or apparently some of them even have like a staff or, you know, I just had my email address on my website for the first couple of years and, you know, we try to write back. Often they're like these incredibly moving letters about people who had family members in the Second World War or they're young people. That was another thing I didn't see coming was a lot of young readers were drawn to this book. Sometimes this is the longest book they finished and, you know, you're just so excited. You're like, what if my book is a gateway drug to Virginia Woolf for them or something? (laughs) Like, what if somehow I could take credit for making like three more readers in the world and they get to go find... Melville, uh, so uh, you know I try, try to write back to all of them, and you know you start to enter a place of total exhaustion because you're not working. I wasn't able to really work for a couple of years on my own work, and then you know the book came out in 41 countries, so there's all these uh, obligations for your foreign publishers too. who Have been kind enough to take chances and translate your previous work, so it was a big maturation process. It's a great gift, but I had a lot to learn about how to
1: handle. My life, which had become kind of a you know I had like a business
0: as well, I had to deal with
1: and and so you said you're you're working on a another novel at this point, yeah, yeah, it's a huge mess <laughs> um are you able to give any any spoilers or or teasers as to what what it is you're working on
0: yeah, sure it's uh the thread that runs through it is libraries, it's set in the past and present and future. A series of kind of different libraries, and uh, there's a text, an ancient text, that I'm inventing that kind of runs through it—a a text written in classical Greek that runs through each of these readers in different places and time. And uh, yeah, it's about my preoccupations. Uh, you know, how do how do humans outlive themselves? You know, what kind of things do we leave behind? Uh, how long do stories last, and how do they outlive us? And how do they change over time? And, of course, climate change. You know, What are we going through right now? We're in this information revolution. How does that affect climate change? Uh, how is What's our planet going to look like in 100 years? How many wild animals? What about our relationship to wild animals mm-hmm. um, when you know, our kids are growing up with one-third as many as we grew up with? Yeah.
1: In a lot of your stories, uh, there is this recurring theme of kind of the natural world and animals and all the different things that kind of are outside of the scope of human life in some ways, but also very much connected to us. And that also just got me curious about your, your own relationship to nature. And I know you live in Idaho. Is that a big part of your life and your values, just connection to nature? Uh, Absolutely.
0: Um, Yeah, I mean, I'm kind of excited because I've been working on this talk for this lecture for a while, and it's strange and it's kind of about these little threads. I had this idea of moral beauty in my mind, and, and certainly it has to do with you know you use the word connected. I think in your question to me, and I think you know our connection to these creatures. This whole idea that there are there's a human world and then there's some wall around that, and then there's a natural world is of course, totally artificial. You know, we have these wildernesses of bacteria inside of our guts and, uh, you know, we are interacting in every time we eat, every time we breathe with the world all around us. And so there is no real human and natural world. It's all just one world and we're connected to it in an incredibly intricate and complicated ways that we don't, you know, we're only scratching the surface of understanding. Uh, so, yeah, I'm always trying to address that in my work. In my own life, I, I'm not happy unless I get outside, you know, at some point. Unfortunately, it's harder in January when you're working a lot, but sometimes you just go for a run in the dark or make sure you take a break if you're lucky enough to have a job like mine. Hopefully some of your listeners are you get to get outside at some point during the work day too and move and, you know, be what we evolved to do, which is to be out under the sky moving around. You know, that's the way we evolved, and it's very unnatural to do what I'm doing and what many of us are doing in, in the United States, which is sitting indoors for much of the day.
1: Circling back to this question of moral beauty and to all the light we cannot see, um, there's something in in that book about the natural world that seems to be almost gr- like morally grounding in a way. Like I, I, and it it made me wonder if, you know, one of the things that's going on there when when you're thinking about a character like Werner who is wrapped up in in the nazi regime and is participating and very much complicit in it but also has a kind of nagging suspicion that he should be behaving a different way it seems like there's something connected there to his interest in the natural world his interest in science his interest in the laws of physics then you've got another character like uh, his friend from boarding school who is very much not willing to go along with the nazis and he's into birds and, and really curious about the natural world. I mean, do you see nature in some ways as being a kind of morally grounding force?
0: Yeah, that's a very nice question. I think so, yes. Um, I think maybe what I was trying to get at, especially with his friend Friedrich, who you mentioned, is that it it is possible, uh, even in those incredibly dire times, to recognize that what you're doing, or what you're being asked to do, or told to do, is right or wrong. Um, you know the costs for both uh, Werner's sister Yetta. I hate to exclude people who don't know the book, but uh, he, for Friedrich and Yetta to recognize that uh, the people are being destroyed around them—that has severe costs when they act on that for both of them. Uh, but it—it it, it was possible for them to do that, and. I hope a reader will ask of whatever age, and it doesn't have to be to the moral degree of, you know, what the Nazi party was doing to human beings. But, you know, what what are we going along with uh, just because everybody else is doing it? You know, when I got to the studio, there's this cool guy here. He hands me a bottle of water in plastic. And I'm thirsty, but I'm like, don't do it. You can do this. Like, you can go 40 minutes without opening that bottle and maybe somebody else will use it. But at least, you know, that'll be one less bottle being used at the radio station today. And that's a, a soup, you know, very silly example. But, you know, what, what kind of things, you know, whether it's airplane travel, whether it's driving cars powered by hydrocarbons, you know, what, what are things are we going along with that do damage our shared world uh, that help us be poor ancestors to our descendants Uh, you know that simple changes might help us be slight live slightly more moral lives sometimes you can get lost in the moral calculus of this but i think it's and it's also really scary how many young people are going through you know, anxiety about climate change, but it's great. I mean, I've been waiting 20 years for these questions to come to the fore, and now they really are in the fore, lots and lots of people. I mean, you know, there were years not that long ago when the total sum of talk about climate change in the news would be like nine minutes in the whole year, and now at least most of the media seems to be asking questions about it. You see a lot of young people starting to realize, like, huh, our parents aren't treating
1: our shared world, our shared atmosphere, very well mm-hmm. and do you see that as part of your role as as an author to try to awaken people on some level to just the ways in which they might be going along with things that they they shouldn't be?
0: I, I hope so. That's a complicated question because you know um, propaganda is one thing, and art is another. Art, I think it should ask questions, not make statements. Uh, but I feel like if there's one thread that's run through all my work, it's always like, look at this place. Look at how freaking lucky we are to be in this world. Look at how unbelievably gorgeous it is and look at what a tiny, tiny finger snap of time we get to be here. And what do you want to do with those, you know, geological milliseconds that we get on this earth?, uh, you know, can you see yourself in a chain of people and not, uh, realize, you know, not, not be so self-centered to think, you know, my life is the most important or the time I'm living is the best. And remember that, you know, what we leave behind is just as important as what we inherited. Um, and so I hope my work kind of just keeps waking up a reader every few pages to the miracles of of what's around us and being alive, whether that's in the moss and the lichen or the ants or the seashells around us or in the clouds. Um, You know, that's the role of poetry, at least for me, and and I think fiction, too, to say, you know, look at the diversity of experience and what a blessing it is that we get to
1: experience just a tiny fraction of that before we're gone. Anthony Doerr, thank you so much for taking time to talk to me. It's been really such a a pleasure and a privilege to, to speak with you.
0: Oh, thanks, Jake.
1: That was my conversation with Anthony Doerr, author of All the Light We Cannot See. Doerr's other works include two collections of short stories, The Shell Collector and Memory Wall, the novel About Grace, and Four Seasons in Rome, a memoir. This podcast was produced by me, Jake Brownell, for 91.5 KRCC and Converge Lecture Series. Converge is a nonprofit program bringing some of the biggest names in contemporary poetry and literature to Colorado Springs. For more information and a schedule of upcoming lectures, head to convergelectureseries.org. And for more episodes of the Converge Lecture Series podcast, please subscribe to the show on iTunes or Google Play. Thanks for listening. I'm Jake Brownell.